Thank you guys and welcome everybody. Uh, what a beautiful Sunday. Um, it's a little chilly, but that's okay. We can deal with some, some wind and chill after uh, some of the things that we've, we've seen so far. So thank you for being here. If you're visiting with us, um, we appreciate your presence with us and uh, love that you're here to worship with us. I'm Jason Little. I'm one of the lay elders here uh, at Grace Fellowship and um, look forward to, to speaking to you today on the truths of, of God from the, the book of 1 Peter. In the last two weeks, um, Joel has led us through the, the first 12 verses. So we're going to be in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through, through 25 tonight. And Joel has reminded us that um, as God's people, although we live here, we're not from here. We were reminded that as Christian people, we're not supposed to feel comfortable in our culture. We're, su- we're supposed to feel somewhat uncomfortable. And he asked in that first week, but what if you're where you're supposed to be, as painful as that might be for you? And his response to this was to press on. And so tonight, I hope you hear some reasons to press on. And then last week, we were reminded that it's God who goes to work in our pain and our sorrow and our suffering and redeems it and gives it back to us as something beautiful and good, and that not a second of our suffering is wasted. In fact, our suffering is an opportunity for our faith to be tested and deepened. And it's in Jesus' faithfulness and endurance that we find ours. And that, that's gotten us where we are tonight. I think Peter's aim in this letter really is to, to fortify a movement from suffering to grace, from things are not what they're supposed to be, or things are not what they should be, but they will be. And he reminds us that we've been called by God, and what an amazing gift that is. And he exhorts us now to live into that calling. In this letter, Peter emphasizes the nurturing of a community. If you are strangers, and we do strange things, we, we gather out here in the elements every Sunday to worship a God we've never seen. If we're going to be strangers, then we need to learn to love and live together in this. And he speaks to us in terms of family because we're called to be family. He calls God our father and us God's children. We're a spiritual household. He calls for brotherly love and likens believers to newborn babies who are to grow up to become mature children. We are a family with one father, and we'll see why that's so crucial a little later. And finally, we are a family that lives in a society, and we're not called to, we are called to live in that society in a particular way. It's not a way that seeks our own good or our own prosperity, but it's a way that seeks the good of, a, of society for the sake of God's glory. So these are the other things that we're going to talk about tonight. First Peter is such a rich letter, and I think it's good and right that the Lord has us here in these present days to hear its truth. 
Martin Luther described 1 Peter as one of the central New Testament books that shows you Christ and teaches you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know, even if you were to never see or hear any other book or doctrine. In other words, 1 Peter is so rich with gospel truth that it houses everything that's critical for you to know who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. So let's read the passage together. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord <clears throat> remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, your church is gathered. And it's not by accident, Lord, you have called us together to praise you, to call on you, to seek you with our hearts. And so we pray by the power of your spirit that you would shape our hearts to receive the truth of your word, that you would call us to obedience, and that you would call us to a deeper and richer love for the sake of the glory of our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Things are not always what they seem. Um, like so many of you, my family and I spent time living in another country. And um, 
And when we first got there, we were told pretty early on that we wanted to avoid contact with the police at all costs. As foreigners, um, we would not be looked on kindly by police, and so we needed to maintain our distance from them as much as we possibly could. A few short weeks after we got there, we were traveling on a road that we had never been on before, and we took a turn into the, into the woods to go back uh, pretty deep into the woods to visit a, a ministry back there. And right as we rounded the corner um, on this road, there was a roadblock. Traffic police sitting, waiting, and there was nothing we could do but just drive up to them. And so we drove up. They had me roll my window down. They asked for some identification and what is the equivalent of the car title, the title of ownership to our vehicle. And I said, well, I can give you identification, but we don't have the car title with us. We don't keep that in the car. Well, why don't you keep it in the car? It's supposed to be in the car. Well, if somebody takes the car, then they take the title too, and then they own the car. So, so we keep the title at home. No, you should have it with you. And so we went back and forth for 10, 15 minutes. And finally, he called me back to, uh, to another police truck. And he said, listen, the government doesn't give us gas money to patrol the streets. He said, if you will give us gas money, then we'll let you go. And I reached into my pocket, and I pulled out 500 pesos, which was about $13. And I said, this is all I have with me. And he said, that'll do. And he let us go. And I thought, okay, that's our first encounter with the police. How many more times are we going to have to deal with this? Um, A few weeks later, actually probably a couple of months later, We were doing our work, building relationships with kids who were living on the streets, and and we were approached by tourism police, and and they asked what we were doing, and we told them, and they said that they wanted us to come and meet the director. Now, the mission of the tourism police was to to protect tourists from riffraff-like begging kids and and street vendors and all that. You know, they want to make things look as as clean as possible. They wanted us to meet their director, and it turns out that her heart was for the kids themselves. Her heart was to protect the kids from the tourists taking advantage of them. And so we had a, a long talk, a long discussion, and then over time... She began to do our work with us. We built a partnership where, she, where we were invited to do some of the things that she was doing, and we invited her to do some of the things that we were doing. We built a relationship of trust. And then eventually, she asked us to go with her to meet the regional director for the national police. And I thought, oh boy, that could be, that could be interesting. So she invited us to his office, and we walked in this massive office with faux gold-plated everything and a, an intricately carved wooden desk and a massive man sitting behind that desk, and he asked what we were doing there. 
And so we explained to him what our role was in the country. And after a few questions, after some conversation, he reached down and grabbed a business card and he leaned over the desk and handed it to me. And he said, if you have any, any trouble, you call me. And what I wanted to say was, sir, if I have any trouble, I'm just going to show them this card you handed me and tell them they better rethink this. We had, we had gotten favor and protection from the highest power in that part of the country, a man who answered only to the president. I'm here to tell you that as foreigners here, you have the favor and protection of Almighty God. And so what will we do given that we have that? Tonight, I want to give you three exhortations from this passage, and I want to give you a big, big reason to heed these exhortations. And the reason I'm going to give you a, a reason to heed them is because it's right here in the passage, for one, and because in obedience, there is such rich, life-giving grace. So these are the, are the three exhortations. Number one, Set your hope fully on future grace. Set your hope fully on future grace. The second one is this. Be holy in your conduct. And third, love one another earnestly. So we'll dig, dig deeper into these as we work our way through the through the passage, but realize that Peter doesn't give the imperatives before he establishes the foundation for hope in the previous verses. Verses 3 through 12 tell us this is your basis for hope. And in verse 13, he says, because of that foundation, therefore, this is how you ought to live. In light of the situation, set your minds and hearts on the things of God. So let's talk about this first exhortation from verse 13. Set your hope fully on future grace. Verse 13 says this, therefore, and again, this, this refers back to all the things you've heard in the previous two weeks about on the one hand, our fragility and insecurity and the, and the fact that we easily forget who we are. And on the other hand, the hope that we have, the inheritance that's being guarded for us by God's power. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The future grace that we are to fully set our hope on is the grace that will be unveiled to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that grace is the unfettered favorability of God. It's utter beauty without blemish. It's magnificent glory with Christ. It's unabated honor. It's utmost pleasure 
with zero pain. It's the fullest of joy in the abolition of sorrow. We don't even have the words to really describe the grace that we have in Christ. Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, you must be born again. Peter, in his letter, tells us, having been born again to a living hope, it has been accomplished for us in Christ. That living hope comes to us through the resurrection of Jesus. We have been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in the risen Christ. So Peter tells us to set our hope fully on that. What does this imply about our emotional capacities? Well, God has given us minds to serve our hearts for the sake of his glory. See, hope comes from our hearts But hope is not auto-generated in our broken hearts. It has to be cultivated in us. And how do we cultivate it? We cultivate it with our minds. Our minds serve our hearts. So Peter's aim is to stoke in us a hope in future grace that produces action in the here and now. We're set apart by God. We're called by God for a specific purpose in this world. And that purpose is to glorify God through obedience that produces love. Peter tells us we get there by preparing our minds for action and being sober-minded. We have to somehow train our minds to think energetically and clearly about the things of God and about the grace that's coming to live in these present days as citizens who seek good, who seek peace, and prosperity for the society that we live in. We have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. We are being guarded by God's power through faith. Let those truths drive your thoughts. Think about them clearly. Though we have not seen our Savior, we love him. And though we do not see him now, we believe in him and rejoice. Thinking about these things is an act of faith. We believe with our minds, and that belief cultivates hope in our hearts. And that hope pushes through the despair and joylessness that tries to overwhelm us in this broken world and in these broken days. I saw an interview recently with, uh, with an artist whose music and lyrics have helped me at various times in my walk with the Lord. Um, and in the interview, he talked about the recording process, and he, and he talked about uh, the first sort of two-thirds of that process being somewhat easy. But it's that last part, that, that what he called tweaking the minutia, where he would just get bogged down and it would seem like it would take forever to, to push through those things. And so he made a practice of, of every day during those times, taking a walk or a drive to somewhere where he could see the horizon. And just seeing the horizon opened up his eyes and his mind to a place that's bigger than himself, and it helped him to, to push, push forward. 
We live, we live on a hill just on the other side of the mountain here, and, and our house faces the east. And in the wintertime, when the trees are, are bare, I can look through my front windows and, and see a ridge way across, way out on the other side, and I can see the sunrise over that ridge. And that was a reminder to me that all the things that bog me down in the day-to-day life that I live, just looking at that sunrise reminds me that the world is so much bigger than those things. Um, It helps with our perspective. It helps to look out and see that the things that that mire us uh, are not all there is. So we are to set our hope fully on the grace that's coming. And we have to hope because right now we can't see very well. Our eyes are veiled and our sight is cloudy, but it'll all be clear at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That revelation is the horizon that we're looking to and we're walking toward. It's there and it's getting closer and the Lord never promises that the the journey is easy. So we're to cling to that hope that one day we'll arrive Okay, exhortation number two. Be holy in all your conduct. This is from verse 15. What does be holy mean? Well, notice that he says, be holy in your conduct since it is written, you shall be holy for I, God, am holy. He's quoting Leviticus here. When we think of holiness as it, as it describes God, it's that God has no standard outside of himself by which to measure. All things are subject to God and the standard of his holiness. He is utterly distinct from his creation. He is set apart. There is none like him. Only he is infinitely pure. Only he is infinitely valuable. So what does it mean for the dispersed recipients of this letter to be holy? What does it mean for us to be holy? Some have said that that holiness here... Peter is arguing for for distancing ourselves from society for the sake of distinction. Set yourselves apart from the evil society around you so that you don't become a part of it. But I think that's not what he's saying at all. His argument is not a separation from society, but a separation from sin to a kind of living that puts the virtues of God on display through our social involvement in everyday life. Our calling is not to separate ourselves but from society, but to put on display the goodness of God in our society. We're to show the world this is how it should be. To be holy in our conduct is to live in such a way that what we value, what we treasure, is being transformed from the passions of our former ignorance, which is valuing what the world values, to valuing God and his glory above all else. And this is not an instant transformation. Verse 14 says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Ignorance generates passions for, for, for selfish living, um, for, a, for a me first culture. Ignorance, which I think is actively pushing aside 
the truth of God, ignoring the goodness of God and the reality of what we're created to be, causes us to conform to all the ethical egoism around us. What's, what's most beneficial for me? It's an appetite for control, for honor, for glory, for power, for wealth, for pleasure, for purpose, for status, something that we think will satisfy us. Why would I waste my time and energy on something that benefits others more than it does myself? Life is short. I'm going to take every opportunity I can to create the life that I want. But as followers of Christ, we need to replace the passions of former ignorance, the appetite for present and temporal gain with clear and active thinking that causes our hearts to hope fully in the grace that will be unveiled at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because for right now, we live here among the brokenness, and while we're here, with hopeful hearts, we seek to bless. Peter is reminding us of the sanctifying power of the Spirit of Christ in us, that what we value and what we desire is being transformed to godliness. Holiness is a distinction not only from our former selves, but within a world, within the world that God has placed us. This holiness is a purification of our inner person through obedience to Christ that finds its expression outwardly. Thinking clearly about holiness prepares our minds to live wholly in a world that values conformity to desires over of selfish gain. So let your heart hope in the grace that's coming. Let your body and your actions reflect the holiness of God. Understand that you are being guarded by the power of God to a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And if the God who loves us has the power to guard that salvation for us, if he has ransomed us from our futile ways, should we not conduct ourselves with reverent fear? And so this is a new motivation. Conduct yourselves with fear. Verse 17. With new life comes new responsibility. This fear is the reverential recognition that Almighty God is at work in you and in me, and we should fear disregarding our Father who loves us and our Savior who, brought, who bought us with his blood and cozying up to the very passions of our former ignorance for which Jesus died. It's all connected. We are accountable to God who will judge how we sought good and how we lived into his calling on us. So holiness is not measured by how we're uh, not like the world. It's a reverent and repentant, repenting, a reverent and repentant turning toward imitation of Jesus. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 7. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
Here's the final exhortation. Love one another earnestly. Notice that without obedience to the previous two exhortations, we can't manufacture obedience to this one. Peter says, having purified your souls, so there's holiness, by your obedience to the truth, so set your heart, your hope, um, by believing the gospel, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. We can't love one another earnestly if our hope is not set on future grace. We can't love one another earnestly if we're mainly concerned with our own comforts and pleasures. And loving one another earnestly is not just a random imperative that Peter throws out. It is, in fact, a command from the Lord. And Peter heard it firsthand. In John chapter 13, Jesus tells his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, Peter didn't immediately hear this. He was more concerned with where Jesus was going. But in the Lord's grace, Peter came to understand this. He came to understand the weight of the command, and he shares it with us here. Love one another with everything in you, putting aside present vanities, setting your hope on future grace. Love one another earnestly. And you know what? Sometimes we're hard to love. I know I am. That's why it takes something out of us to love. It costs us something. If it were easy, anybody could do it. And the world wouldn't know that we were followers of Jesus. But because it's hard to love, it costs us something. Now, I'll say this. In the four-plus years of the life of this church family, I have seen some amazing God the Holy Spirit-fueled love for one another. I've watched it happen. And there are probably exponentially more acts of love for one another that I'm unaware of. So don't hear me say, change everything you're doing and do this. Hear me say that loving one another is the most important thing that we can be doing with the gifts that we've been given. God granted spirit-fueled obedience to Jesus in love is what we're supposed to be doing. We need each other, but we don't get all of each other if we're conforming to passions of former ignorance. We don't get all of each other if our hope is set on what we can gain by loving one another. So that's my hope for us, that by the power of Christ's Spirit in us, we would always be growing and seeking ways to love one another more deeply 
and more fully. So finally, this, this beautiful reminder of our value in the Lord's eyes, verse 18. It says this, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Look, I know that for many of you, you sometimes just feel like you're going through the motions. I know you're tired. And I know there are times when you don't see the value of the struggle. I know in my own home group, there are stories of deep pain and suffering. There are times when we hurt to our core. We are in no way immune to the depths of hurt that we face in this life. But know this, that pain is not an afterthought for Jesus. He knows it more deeply than we can fathom. Cling to the hope of the grace that's coming to you. You were bought by God from a useless inheritance to the greatest possible inheritance. And he didn't just give some of his riches for you. He gave the very blood of Jesus for you. For your sake, for my sake, the Lord revealed salvation to us, buying us with the precious blood of Jesus and raising him from the dead, giving him glory so that we believe and hope in him. And he calls us to obedience because in obedience, there is infinitely rich grace. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the beauty of the richness of hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you know us deeply in all of the places that we hurt, in all of the places that we lose sight of who we are in all of the places that we struggle. Lord, you know us deeply and you meet us there. 
and you unveil the riches of your grace to us. So God, I pray that um, that your spirit would be with our hearts this week, that we would be reminded of the calling to which we have been called and that we will seek ways to love one another for the sake of the glory of our Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.